Alright. You guys are all a quiver wanting to know where you're turning to because I got the bulletin wrong. So, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're just going to read a few verses out of the chapter that we just read. But if you will please join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Deuteronomy 6, beginning at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day to understand that the first battleground of our lives is our own lives, but that the second, Father, is the families that you have given to us. Let us realize, Lord, that change in the culture begins with change in the home, and that starts itself with change in the hearts of fathers. Lord, transform us by your grace, that in our homes and in our lives and in our nation, you might be honored. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was laboring most of the week on the sermon that I was expecting to preach, um, carrying on in Hebrews, and it was made very plain to me, very late in the game, this morning in fact, that that was not the sermon I was supposed to be preaching. So, here we are. It's a little raw, (laughs) it's a little shorted uh, in prep time, but I, I think that It's what the Lord has for us to hear this morning. Um, So, this is the Lord's plan and will for the growth of the kingdom of God. It's it's often joked in churches, I've heard it all my life, whenever somebody turns up pregnant, somebody will remark, there's more than one way to grow a church. The truth is, that's the primary way to grow the church. God intends that our children would grow up in the church and would continue in the church and that they would be the church of the next generation. This is is the truth. However you slice this, from a human perspective, Christianity is always exactly one generation away from extinction. Okay, If we fail to teach the next generation the things of God, apart from the sovereign will of God, who will always preserve a remnant, I know this... (laughs) But if we fail to do what God calls us to do, we stand in danger of the Christian faith dying with this generation. And and we see it all around the world. We see churches that are diminishing because there is no new life in them. There is no new blood, neither no new converts nor new children. And some of that translates to the fact that in the mind of many, church is the place for old women and very small children. And they learn that because dads don't take their children to church. They learn that because fathers are absent from church. And when fathers are absent from church, when children are old enough to feel like I can make my own decision, guess where they are? They're with dad. They're doing whatever he does. They're modeling his behavior. 
They're following in his footsteps. And so what God calls us to do is to remember that the kingdom grows through families, and it starts with fathers. There are two things that will ultimately change the course of this nation, revival and awakening. And honestly, as we think about how God calls fathers to live, we are going to be considering both of them. Revival that changes our hearts will awaken the hearts of those with whom we live. And guys, there's no place where this is more important than in your own home. So let's take a look at what God has to tell us here in Deuteronomy 6. This is kind of the seminal passage of what it is to be a Jew. It's called the Shema. And Shema is the first word in in Hebrew which says hear. So if you want to know how to say hear in Hebrew, say Shema. That's what it is. It means hear, O Israel. And so this passage has become kind of the cornerstone of everything that the Jews believed about themselves. And notice where it begins. It starts with God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, so what does this mean about how you live out your life as a father? Well, first of all, if you're going to be an effective father, you have to be doctrinally correct. You can be the best man in the world, raising your children with every human idea of rightness, spend all the time in the world with them, teach them to be good people, teach them to be good citizens, teach them to be responsible adults, and if you miss out on being doctrinally accurate and teach them about God, you've missed the boat. Okay? You have to teach them the truth about God, which means that you yourself must know the truth about God. Okay? Notice where the Bible begins. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, right? It begins with the declaration of who God is, and everything that flows out of the scripture flows out of the truth that God is exactly who he says he is, okay? The entirety of our relationship with him is rooted around the fact that he never lies, doesn't ever get it wrong, and is always right in everything that he does and has the power to execute everything that he intends to execute and has the purpose to do what he intends. Okay? He's God. In a nutshell, that is called sovereignty. God is over everything. And if we're going to raise our children in the truth, we must understand the God with whom we have to do. We must know who he is, and we must set ourselves to walk in obedience to him. Moses commands the children of Israel to hear. He commands them to hear that God is one. The central declaration of this Jewish faith says God is one. He is the true one. He is the supreme one. He is the only one. There is no room for any other. So right away, that brings us into conflict with the fact that most of us harbor false gods in our hearts. Right away, that brings us into conflict with the fact that if we look into the depths of our own heart with any honesty, we're going to see that we have erected things that compete against God. What is the first commandment? You will have no other gods before me. We all know it, right? The Hebrew literal says, you will set no other gods before my face. What does that mean? It means, don't hold anything else up and expect me to recognize it as God. Amen? Amen? Don't set anything else before me. 
neither ahead of me sequentially nor in front of me locationally. When I look at you, I should see no loves but me. Everything is about the love that I have for you and the love that you have for me. This is the first commandment lived out. And we have to understand what this is. The simple truth is that this idea kills every other religion. There are no other gods. There is no multiplicity of gods. And all of the religions that start with a god who is anything less than that are ultimately false. All of the religions that say God is this, but you have to add your own little bit, they're ultimately false. All of the religions of the world, except for a true biblical Christianity, are declared by this declaration to be absolutely untrue. Which means although we are called to be gracious to people who believe something different, we are not permitted to compromise on that truth. So fathers, you have a responsibility to understand this and to be the very guard over the lives and hearts of your family. This means that for you, this understanding cannot merely be an intellectual assent. It has to be something vital. Okay? Look again at what Moses tells them in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So this instruction is to the people in general... But as we read down, we see that it's instructions to parents and particularly instructions to fathers. Okay? You have to be the one who loves the Lord your God with everything you are. Any hope of true reform and a good future for this land or your family begins from this same starting point. At the center of everything in your life, if God is not there, the rest is out of order. If you allow anything to take the place of God's supremacy in your life, your entire life will be out of balance, out of kilter, out of whack, out of focus. It's going to be a mess. And until you begin to to relinquish those false gods and give God the place in, in your life that is His, everything in your life is going to feel that out of kilter sort of wackiness. This is an opportunity for each of us to examine the reality of who we are and to examine the way that we honor our God. Any other attempt to reform this land will end in its destruction. If we seek to make things better by simply addressing them politically, we're going to see nothing but more division. We're going to see nothing but chaos. We're going to see nothing but violence. It will escalate. Unless the church takes her role in leading the nation and in leading what God calls us to be and to do, we will fail. We cannot be second seat. We are not permitted to adopt the tools and the weapons of the world to try and change the way this land works, to try and change the way this land looks. What is our primary weapon? Prayer and Scripture. What God has given to us is one offensive weapon in our entire arsenal. We've got a helmet, we've got a shield, we've got a breastplate, we've got a belt, we've got good shoes. None of those things are used to attack but to flee. (laughs) You have one weapon. It is the sword of truth. It is the very word of God. That is your weapon. 
And we wield that weapon on our knees in prayer. And we wield that weapon in our conversation. And we wield that weapon first in the confines of our own heart as we submit to what God calls us to be and to do. We have to understand that it begins with us and it begins with the truth of God's word and it begins with the fact that everything we do has to come out of his truth. 2 Timothy 2.2 says this, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What does that tell us? It tells us that we ought to be living in such a way that our children can look at our lives and see what we're doing and say, yes, I want to do just like dad. And then we can look at their lives and see their lives honor their God. That's the calling. That's the calling that is set before us. And that's the calling that matters most. Because in the end, when we set ourselves to do this, the first person it moves is you. It changes you. It changes your perspective. It changes your heart. It changes your life. It changes your focus. And it changes your impact. Because it allows you to then begin to be a person who honors his God. You love the Lord with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And when Jesus quoted this text, he added all of your mind. That's an important aspect as well. Because there is no place in your life where you are allowed by God to simply half love him. So as God begins to press this on you, it's going to necessitate changes. Remember when Jesus talked about a man trying to build a tower? And he said he he started out to build a tower and he got about half done and went, oh, I'm out of money. And then the tower sat unfinished for the rest of his days. And he said, everybody mocks him. And he said, it's like a king who goes to war and he looks at his opponent and says, I'm going to whoop up on you. And then he realizes after the battle has been engaged that I don't have enough army to whoop up on you. We're all going to die. And what was he telling us this about? He was talking about the need for us to count the cost of following him. This is not something that's often discussed in church. We're too crazy to get our numbers up. We want to make sure that we're the biggest church in town. So if I'm telling you up front that following Jesus is going to be costly, I might scare you off if you're not sincere and earnest and being called by God. But if you are being called by God and I tell you count the cost, what's that mean? It means that you're going to come into this arrangement with your eyes open wide and with your heart clear and understanding, yes, this will be costly, but I'm prepared to pay the cost. If you're going to go into a restaurant and buy a fancy dinner, that's okay as long as you have enough money in the bank to do it. I don't object to you spending money on something like that. I have nothing to say about it except to make this example. If you walk in to to have a fancy dinner, you better make sure that you have enough. So if you're going to seek to follow Christ, be prepared to pay the cost. There will be things that God calls you to let go of. There will be things that God challenges you to change your mind about. There will be things that God says, yeah, I understand what you've been thinking all of your life and what you've been taught all of your life, but let me be very honest with you, you're wrong. And you're wrong because my word says you're wrong. Not because a preacher says you're wrong or because your friend says you're wrong or your wife says you're wrong or your children say you're wrong. You're wrong because God says you're wrong. And you will encounter those things all the time 
for as long as you draw breath. Because none of us have this right 100%. And there will always be things that God brings to mind wherein he's teaching you and changing you and shaping you. You have to be willing to accept that price. You have to be willing to look at the scripture and look at your life and say, Yes, Lord, whatever you say is true. Whatever you require, I will do. And however you command me to walk, I will seek to walk to the best of my ability. If you do not do this intentionally, you lose the power to speak this into your children's lives effectively. Because you will not be able to correct them effectively if you yourself are not correctable. Amen? Amen. Anybody like to receive advice from somebody who doesn't take it? Not so much. Those are very unbearable people. We all should be somebody who is willing to receive advice, receive counsel with humility, and examine what's being given to us and say, yes, this is true, and I will respond accordingly. And if you don't find it to be true, that's fine. Let's have the conversation. Let's open up the Bible and look at it and say, what do you see? Help me understand what you're seeing. Because at the end, all of it comes down to the Scripture. If I'm wrong, show me. Open up the Bible. Tell me that I'm wrong and show me why. I want that. I want that for my life as a human. I want that for my life as a Christian. I certainly want that for my life as a pastor. But in that exchange, understand that I have the same right to do the same for you. And when you're wrong, I not only have a right to open up the scripture and come to you and say, brother, you're wrong. I have a responsibility to do it. And I'll be held accountable if I don't. You have the same responsibility in the lives of the people that are entrusted to you. And if you are a father, that begins with your children. It begins with your family. It begins with the people who are yours. You are responsible to teach them the things of God, which means you yourself have to Honor the things of God with everything you have in you. It has to be intentional and purposeful. And it has to be something that you love. You can't submit to the word of God grudgingly. You can't submit to the word of God with your shoulders bowed and your back hunched and going, fine, I'll do it, but only because you're making me do it. That's not submission. That doesn't honor God. Because you'll find that when you live that way, So do your kids. When you live in rebellion, only submitting because God is bigger, you will find that your children live in rebellion, only submitting because you are bigger. And that doesn't please him. And it doesn't honor him. And it's not good for your children. So treasure the words of God. Look again at what he says. Chapter 6, verse 6. These words which I command you today shall beware... In your heart. Amen? They're going to be in your heart. They're going to be something that you love. They're going to be something that you desire. They're going to be the thing that you want to participate with and in whenever you have the time to do it. And that means a lot of time that you spend doing other stuff, you probably ought to be in the Bible. That doesn't mean that the only thing you do with your life is sit in your chair and read your Bible. I've had this conversation at nausea with certain people. 
I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that there is room for your passion for God's Word to increase. Amen? You let God sort with you just how much He wants you to be in the Word. And I promise you this much. It will be more than you are. I'll just give you that much. No matter how much it is, a little bit more is where God is going to lend, lead you. Because in the end, it teaches you to treasure the time that you get to spend with Him. It becomes the joy of your life. It becomes that thing which you desire and which you hunger for. And the wonder of it is that the more you hunger for it, the more God is willing to give you for it and of it. The more He's willing to satisfy your soul, which itself will feed you and keep you from sin. Because remember... That to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet, but to the satisfied soul, even the honeycomb is loathsome. If you love God, and you love His Word, and you love His truth, and you seek Him with all of your heart, that love itself will help keep you from egregious sin. It will also remind you that the truth of God and that delight is actually nourishment for you. You will feed your own soul, and by feeding your soul, you will grow. Does anybody here look at their lives and say, I am spiritually everything I want to be? Anybody? Never met anybody that did. Even, even pagans want to grow a little bit. How do you grow? You love God. You seek His face. You spend time with Him. You read His Word. You pray. You live out what He tells you to do. You obey the simple instructions. He'll give you more once you get these down. A little bit at a time is typically how He tends to work. All of these things mean that you are growing. And there is always room for growth. Now, after it has moved you and started to work in you, guess what it does? It starts to percolate out of you and it begins to work through you. It begins to work in the lives of the people who God has entrusted to you as you teach these things to your children. So teach these things to your children diligently. This means with purpose and intention. This means that you need to be actively thinking about how you instruct your children in the things of God. This is not accidental teaching. There's room for that as well. But this is the kind of teaching that is systematic and purposeful, wherein you say to yourself, my children need to know who God is, and I'm responsible to teach them. I'm glad you're bringing your families to church. I really am. But you need to recognize that God has laid out the way this works. My job is to teach you to do the work of ministry. That means my responsibility is to instruct you so that you can instruct them. That's the way this works. The way that God intends the, the hierarchy of information to go. He gives us all the Bible, everybody has it, and he gives to me the, the calling and the responsibility, and I pray the giftedness, to, to open up the word, to hear from him, and to bring to you what God has said. Your responsibility is to take that, apply it to your life, and disseminate it out to those who are given to you. Kind of in the same way that I disseminated it to you. And then they will themselves pass it on to others. That's that whole 2 Timothy 2 thing. The things that you've seen in me. Entrust them to faithful men who themselves will be able to give it to others. This is what God has given us as a pattern 
for growth. This is what God has given us as a pattern for how we teach. So you need to be intentional and diligent about teaching your children. And it needs to be continually. So here's where the accidental teaching kind of fits in. Look at the times that Moses gives us here in in chapter 6. He says, these things will be in your heart. And then starting at verse 7, he says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. What is he telling us? He's telling us that that's pretty much all the time. The intention is that whatever your life is doing, you are absolutely focused on finding opportunities to teach your children the things of God. You are looking for chances to insert, or insert's not the right word, that implies there's some falsehood. You're looking for some chances to unpack the places where God is hiding in life, because he's everywhere. There's always opportunities to teach who God is and what's going on. These are the conversations that you need to be having with your children. And then you need to teach them incidentally. This is the stuff of life. And you're going to find times that are spontaneous and even seemingly accidental where the truth of God is the perfect answer. But you need to be looking for them. You need to have your spiritual eyes open. You need to have your biblical eyes open so that when these instances occur, you are prepared with something from God to help your children understand the shape of the world. What I'm talking about is imparting to your children a biblical worldview so that everything that they see and everything that they think and everything that they know and everything that they love is filtered through the lens of Scripture. You say, well, isn't that brainwashing? No, it's not. It's actually combating the brainwashing that's going on in the culture all the time. There is a worldview in the culture that excludes God. It says there are no rules, there are no limits, there are no laws, do what you want. Do you know what the central tenet of Satanism is? Do what you will. That's that's it. That's how you be a good Satanist. You do whatever you want to do. So what our culture is teaching people is to go be Satanists. They're not putting on black robes and slaughtering sheep as far as I know, but maybe they are. But they're they're teaching children that they are their own God and that they can do whatever they want without consequence. So what I want us to do, what God calls us to do as the people of God, is to inoculate our children against that worldview with a biblical worldview, to teach them that however you want to think about things, there is a God that one day you will stand in front of. There is a God that one day you will give an account to. And there is a God who himself sets the rules. And those rules are non-negotiable. We have violated his rules. We have violated his principles. We have violated his tenets. And every single one of us is guilty and deserving of hell. And it is not until we are washed in the blood of Christ and set free from the sin that bound us that we have hope, that we have life, that we have purpose. It is God's work to do that in us. It is God's work to transform us. It is God's work to save us. It is our job to do everything that we can to teach our children the things of God so that the Spirit has a ready supply of truth inside of them to use as he's working in their lives as well. How many times have you found your life altered because you thought about something in the Scripture and it gave you wisdom and gave you guidance to know what to do and how to do it? Well, did that come out of nowhere? Did you just invent the truth of Scripture? I hope not. 
It's there because you put it in there. You opened the Bible, you read it, God planted it in you, and it was brought out in the right time. You need to be mindful about giving your children that same guardian, that that same heart. And at the same time, we also need to be teaching them openly. There needs to be constant reminders set before you. Moses says, bind them as frontlets before your eyes, write them on the doorposts of your house. I'm not suggesting that. But you do need to be actively seeking for ways to build your life in such a way that there are constant reminders set up as as guardians around your life. Uh, Scripture on the walls is fine, but let there be other things that you're doing that when somebody starts to go astray, they they might have a reminder that will grab them, pull them back, help them not walk, uh, help them not walk off in, in, in falsehood. So as God works in you and changes you and it translates through you into the lives of your children, it also then begins to change them. So look at me at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to find the New Testament restatement of this Old Testament truth. Ephesians, I'm sorry, I said 4, I meant 6. Chapter 6, verse 4, not chapter 4, verse 6. I'm sure it's a good verse, but it's not the one I wanted. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says this, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now we're given two halves of the coin here. We're given a negative statement, do not do this, and a positive statement, rather, do that. Both halves are equally important, and we're going to start off with the negative. So first of all, He says, do not provoke them to wrath. This means that you must not act in such a way that your life and interaction is intentionally aimed at making your child angry. The the word wrath is this deep-seated unhappiness, this deep-seated anger, this deep-seated boiling cauldron of of rage that, that some parents seem determined to provoke in their children. Okay? This is forbidden to us. Now, it does not exclude correction of both verbal and physical, and we'll talk more about that later. And it does not exclude moments when your child becomes angry because all kids get angry. It doesn't exclude their sinful rebellion or behavior. It's going to happen. It does mean that when those things happen, you have to be the adult. You are forbidden from being petty or mean-spirited in your dealings with children. Okay? And you may not act according to God, in a manner and attitude that you know will make them fill up with wrath and anger. So don't do the things that you know they hate, specifically because you know they hate them, just because you can. This is not just about children, by the way. Sometimes this defines us in our interaction with people as a rule. Sometimes... We just like to stir the pot. And sometimes we just like to make people upset because we think it's funny. There's a difference between a joke and being mean-spirited. And sometimes we lose that line. And we lose it pretty quickly with our children because they don't have the depth of understanding that we do. So it requires us to interact with them in a different way. It requires us that that we need to interact with them in a way that is always couched 
in love. We are not to drive them away from God and away from ourselves, but unto them. It means that we must not make them bitter about you, about life, or about God. The rule is grace and mercy, grace and mercy, grace and mercy, grace and mercy. As often as you can, in the fullest ability that you possess, lavish love, grace, and mercy, even when you must correct. And we'll talk again about correction here in a minute. That's just kind of an overarching guide. So, then he gives us this positive half of the statement. We are to bring them up, and there's two halves of this instruction. The first is training, which is discipline, and admonition, which is instruction. The first is what you do to them. The second is what you say to them. So we're going to take them actually backwards. We're going to talk about training first. This encompasses the whole of the instruction that's been given, but it also includes the specific goal of a father's role. You have a responsibility towards them all the days of your life. You are dad. You will always be dad. Even when they're married and have their own children, you are still dad. You have a responsibility. Now, the way that that works changes and matures. The the dynamic alters slightly. But you will always be the one who is influential in their lives if you have established a healthy relationship. If you have established a good, healthy, biblical, God-honoring relationship with your children, you will always be one of the first people that they turn to for counsel and advice when things don't make sense. You will be the one that they come to when they don't understand. You will be the one that they come to to bounce ideas off of and to discuss things with. And I pray that you will be the one they come to for an exclusively biblical perspective. That must be what we offer. That must be consistently who we are. Because as we walk in that way, not only do our children grow, but we also continue to grow. We also continue to grow up. This is how you impact them for an entire generation. The power of a father to shape the lives of his children cannot be overstated. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Plant them in the truth. Train them up according to their bent and according to the way that God has made them. And train them up to love the Lord their God. It doesn't mean they won't wander. It doesn't mean they won't stray. It doesn't mean they won't sometimes break your heart. But it does mean that in the midst of all of those things, you can cling to the hope and the promise that if they have been rooted and trained up in the gospel and rooted and trained up in the truth of God's word, they will eventually come back. They will be restored. God's word never fails. So, part of your responsibility is to be the gatekeeper for your child. You just don't let them run wild in the streets. I know Onega is a crazy town. Um, you want to stand watch over who is allowed to be their closest companions. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You can do all the best in the world to raise your children in the truth, and if you let them run with heathens, you're going to have heathens. Because their friends have more time with them than you do. It's just how it is. So you get to be the gatekeeper over that. You get to be the one who says, yes, you, you, can, you can see that person, but here, where I have influence over them as well. You, you need to be the one who's standing guard over that. 
You need to be the one who's paying attention to it. You also need to be the one who is standing guardian over what they see, hear, and read. Pay attention to the books they're checking out from the library. Pay attention to the music they're listening to. Pay attention to the movies that they're watching. Pay attention to the things that they are exposed to and be mindful of that. Be mindful of the pressure of the culture to warp them and to be aware of the fact that right now in this culture, maybe not necessarily in this town yet, but in this culture right now, the school is not your friend. What's being taught to the children in classrooms all around this land is intentionally designed to destroy Christianity. And if you don't think that's true, you need to look at some of the curriculum. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Fathers, you have a responsibility to be mindful of what's being taught to your children and to be proactive. If you're allowing somebody else to teach your children to be the primary educator in your children's lives, you need to be actively involved in that process. Exercise your power to say no. If you're wrong about something and they don't get to do something, they're not going to die. But if you let them go, they might. Exercise your power to say no. It is better to err on the side of caution until you understand what's really at stake. Be aware of this. This is a deep and powerful thing. You have been entrusted with the lives of your children. So we train them in this way. We guard them in this way. But we also are called to discipline them in a way that is faithful according to Scripture. Physical correction is both instructed by God and needed by them. Now, I know this is politically unpopular. It's potentially dangerous for you in this culture and in the environment in which we live. But you need to resolve for your own self, in your own mind, am I going to obey God or am I going to obey man? You have to settle that. So you need to be intelligent about how you discipline your children correctly and about how you do it. Be be mindful of public places and, and, and be aware of what's going on around you. But you need to know what the scripture says because this is not a negotiable thing with God. Proverbs chapter 13, 24 says that physical discipline done correctly is love. It says this, He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. I'm going to read that again. He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. There is a a tremendous influx of bad theology in the church that has come only from humanistic ideas, which says, don't spank your children. Don't ever spank your children. You'll make them unhappy. Well, I I remember spankings, and I was never happy about them. But honestly, I am now. I'm grateful that I had parents that were willing to whip me when I needed it. They missed a lot of them, so when I got one or two that I didn't deserve, I figured it was even. I didn't complain too much about it. We need to set ourselves to understand that God's not neutral on this question. This is not negotiable. If you will not discipline your children, you are actively hating them, according to the scripture. And I don't care what Dr. Anybody says about it. I know what Dr. God says, and that's enough. We have to embrace this. We have to be willing to say, Lord, I trust that you are right. 
But there are some guidelines just for awareness. And this is key. Never, ever, ever strike your child when you are angry. Under any circumstances, for any reason whatsoever. It's not acceptable because you are not in control of yourself at that point. It's not a spanking. It's violence. Be clear. Be calm. Be direct. Sit them down. Tell them what they did, why they're getting a spanking. Administer the punishment. And when you're done, give them love. Give them a hug. Tell them you still love them. Make sure that they know that your relationship is not damaged, is not broken, is not fractured, but that you are helping them to not make bigger mistakes later. Bring all of it to the scripture. Make sure they understand why what they did was wrong according to God's word. And make sure they understand why your response is appropriate according to God's word. Bring it to this ground. And in doing this, your physical discipline will be corrective in their life rather than destructive. The bottom line of it is that God gave children a reset button. Firmly padded, well-positioned, easily accessible. Right on the backside, right in the middle. The reset button. And it helps cement what you're saying. It helps them understand. And it will get their attention, I promise. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14 says, Do not withhold correction from a child. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You'll beat him with a rod and save his soul from hell. Now, the sad truth is this. If you will not discipline your child, you can be certain that God will chasten you through them. Because Proverbs also says this. Chapter 29, verse 15 says, The rod and the rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So what happens when we as followers of Christ set ourselves to raise our families in the truth, to discipline our children according to God's word, to instruct them in righteousness, and we set ourselves to live this out? It it starts out, it changes us. It goes through us, and it changes them. And after it changes them, it begins to change the world. Because remember, this is the primary place wherein we grow the church, in families, in our children. Because as we are teaching our children to love God, and they are learning to love God, and they are growing in grace, and growing in truth, and growing in righteousness... What happens is they become themselves people who will go out into the world and impact the world for Christ. This is then a continuum. This continues to press out. This continues to to, to grow in grace. Fathers matter. Do you know what the single largest common denominator in our prison system is? It's not abuse. It's not drugs. It's not race. It's not socioeconomic status, no matter what you hear in the news. It's fatherlessness. The single largest common denominator is fathers absent from the home. Look, I I know that fathers are getting beat in, in, in the culture. That manhood itself is getting beat in the culture. That we're laughable, that we're detestable, that we are the enemy. I know that that's the message that's being touted everywhere. It's, it's, been on, it's been on sitcoms for my entire life. I cannot remember 
in the television shows that were popular when I was growing up, a single father on television who was admirable or respectable. They were all laughingstocks. They were all fools. They were all buffoons. We've, we've bought that image. All around this nation right now, you know how fathers are celebrating Father's Day? They're drinking beer on the lake without their kids. They're doing everything they can to be away from their families. They're hiding in their man caves. They're, they're, they're playing with their toys. They're doing whatever they like to do because they're not really involved in the lives of their children. What's the message that's constantly touted about how to be a man? Have this toy, have that toy, go here, do this, play this game, live this way. That's not manhood. Biblical manhood is defined as the one who bears responsibility for others. That's what it is to be a man. It's to stand when others fall and to be the one who carries the load for the people who are under your care. That's who God calls us to be. And that image of manhood needs to be reclaimed from a culture that has no idea what manhood is. Now, I know that somebody's going to listen to this and they're going to go, that's toxic masculinity. No, it's not. It's biblical masculinity. And yes, it might be toxic to your worldview. I hope that it is. But it's not toxic to your soul. It's not toxic to the souls of the people who are touched by it. It's righteousness lived out in the life of a family. And it's what God calls us to be. The vast majority of the culture has turned fatherhood into something detestable. And we need to strike back at that by reclaiming fatherhood. And it does not start in Hollywood. It starts with us. They have no power that we do not give them. So take it away. Stop supporting them. Stop allowing them to have influence in the lives of your children. Start speaking truth when lies are touted. Be the change in the midst of this culture by being Christ in the midst of your family first. By standing up for what God has called us to be and to do. You have the charge of your family. Nobody else is going to stand before God and give an account for your family, Dad. Not your wife. Not their teachers, not their friends, you. When you stand before God, you are the one who stood in the gap or didn't, and you are the one who God will come talk to about the condition of your family. It is your responsibility. Bear it. Whether you carry it or not, it's still yours. The way that I look at responsibility is kind of different from a lot of people. I tend to think if I am responsible for something, I am at least going to do what I can to make it work. I may fail, and I do spectacularly, often. Ask my wife. (laughs) Ask my children. They know I fail spectacularly because I don't tend to do anything by halves. But if I'm going to be held responsible... I want to stand in a way that at least I know the mistakes that I'm accountable for are mine. I'm going to do what I'm called to do to the best of my ability. And I would challenge you to embrace that idea. Fatherhood is a high calling. 
It is the highest calling that a man can aspire to. I would say this. If God has made you a father, it is a blessing and it is a joy and it is a privilege in spite of the fact that it is a terrifying responsibility. (laughs) But it's a good thing. And your kids need you more than they need anybody else in the world. They need their moms in a completely different way. That's a completely different sermon. (laughs) But they need you, Dad, to stand in the gap and to be that man who shows them what a man is. Because if we take all of this and boil it down to the very end, the truth of it is this. When you begin to teach your children the things of God, they begin to look at you and learn through you what God looks like. Not only by the things that you say, but by the things that you do. You are the visible representation of God in the lives of your children. And in many ways, your relationship with them will define how they get along with God. You are the first authority in their life. You are where they learn to respect authority and submit to the authority of God by submitting to you. You are the one who teaches them what's right and what's wrong. And you are the one who shapes that for the rest of their lives. That is a privilege. That is an awesome thing to undertake. And in doing it well, even if you fail in every other area of your life, if you never make two nickels to rub together, if, 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 you, if you're constantly fighting against everything breaking and all the things in your life that you set out to do are, are wrong and ruined and everything else, whatever else in your life goes wrong, if you get this right, you are a success in the eyes of God. You are a man after God's own heart. And you are walking in truth and righteousness and obedience. And the results of all the rest of it, when you stand in eternity, God's not going to care if your business failed. He's not going to care if you didn't get that promotion. It doesn't matter to Him if if things didn't work out the way that you wanted them to work out. And when your children are standing around you in glory, they're going to tell you the same thing. Dad, none of that mattered. The only thing that mattered is that you taught us to love God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace. And Lord, I know that these things are hard to hear and they're hard to put into practice. And God, we all fail so badly. So we ask for mercy and grace. We ask, God, that you would give us the the ability to look at our lives, be honest about who we are, and to do better. But God, I pray that you will challenge us and that you would lavish your grace over us Help us to to walk in truth. And Father, I pray that you would just press these things into every heart here. Help us to love you. Help us to honor you. Help us to obey. That Christ might be honored in this place, in these families and in other families, God, that you will bring unto us. That this community might be transformed and from here, this nation and even the world. God, let it begin with us and let it begin now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.